Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, fixes for the confirmation holdup that's slowing agencies down. Those slowdowns mean that there is a critical component of the federal government that doesn't have a their permanent leader. It's got no leader or it has an acting official or somebody who's having to do two or three jobs at one time. And cataloging at the Energy Department ramps up. We built a 5G catalog recently. We're in the process of, of starting a cyber defensive capability catalog so we can identify what we do at DOE because uh, it's such a big enterprise people don't always know what we do. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee says the Defense Department budget for fiscal 2023 will grow. Representative Adam Smith says the Ukraine invasion is the reason for the increase. Smith says new technology like drone swarms and others are, quote, the key to deterrence he wants to drive in that budget. The Department of Health and Human Services has a new chief information officer. Carl Mathias will leave his job as CIO of the U.S. Marshals Service to take the job. George Chambers has been acting CIO since Janet Vogel retired at the end of 2021. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We're going to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. You can file your nominations now. The list of finalists debuts March 28th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal government organizations that career employees lead fare better than organizations that political appointees lead. That's the broad finding from new work by the Partnership for Public Service. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman's vice president for research and evaluation at the partnership. She's former senior advisor to the National Security Advisor. That's the broad stroke that I take away from this work, Lauren. What are the finer points underneath that broad stroke that you think people should be aware of? Welcome. Great question, Francis, and so good to be on the show again. So I think bottom line, let's just start with the fact that private sector, public sector, doesn't matter. All kinds of organizations should understand that better employee engagement leads to better performance and better outcomes for these organizations. And one of the most influential parts of employee engagement, what actually drives it, is leadership, effective leadership. And this has been an, under, uh, an understanding that we've had looking at the best places to work in the federal government for the last 15 years since we started this at the partnership. And our government works best, I think, when it has a full team of capable individuals who are either career or political appointees. But there are a lot of preventable and fixable dynamics that can work against appointees in particular in their public service careers. So for that reason, we wanted to look at how those challenges might actually impact the federal workforce and their employee engagement scores, whether they are led by a political appointee or led by a career person through the lens of employee engagement. And what we found is, as you said, the, there is a small but statistically significant difference between the employee engagement scores of those subcomponents across the federal government led by a career civilian versus led by a Senate confirmed politically appointed leader. And the what that doesn't say is that one is inherently better than the other. What it does suggest to me is that there's a lot of differences in how career employees look at their leadership. And there's a lot of challenges in particular faced by political appointees 
that are different than those faced by career civilians, whether that be things we've talked about before. There's so many vacancies right now across the politically appointed Senate confirms leadership contract. There are the tenure of leaders who are in those sorts of positions tends to be shorter than their career appointees. When they do get confirmed, they tend to be coming into roles that have been gapped for a long period of time. So the, the team that they're going into has had an acting leader or maybe no leader at all for a period of time. So in so many ways, we are not setting up such political point of leaders for success for the kinds of roles that we expect of them. I want to back up with, uh, for a second to a comment you made at the beginning, uh, and that is that these are preventable and fixable barriers. What are some of those and what are the fixes or preventative measures to uh, keep them from happening in the first place? So we have seen in work that we've done at the partnership that the process for confirming political appointees has slowed down significantly since the Reagan administration. On top of that, there are many more political appointees that need to be confirmed by the Senate than there previously were. Um, those slowdowns mean that there is a critical component of the federal government that doesn't have a their permanent leader. It's got no leader or it has an acting official or somebody who's having to do two or three jobs at one time. Um, and there's a with that comes a fair amount of turnover uh, in those roles. So that acting leader will leave. They may have another acting leader come in. They may have their permanent employee leader come in. But those permanent political appointees tend to serve for shorter terms than their career equivalents. So I think all of those things we can fix by some of the things we've talked about before, by fixing our Senate confirmation process, by cutting down the number of leaders that require Senate confirmation, and also by being just really purposeful about the kind of people that we select for this or these roles, making sure that you're putting in Senate confirmed appointees who have leadership backgrounds, who have deep familiarity with the kinds of offices they're going into, as well as thinking about just acknowledging the fact that they are going to have shorter tenures, that they may, when they when they depart, there may be some challenges in that office in terms of having a good consistent leader across the board, making sure you have a mitigation strategy that has, uh, that expects turnover, that puts in place a good temporary leader, that makes sure the team employee engagement um, uh, priorities are focused on, but whether you've got your permanent leader in place or your acting leader, these are all things that we know are going to happen and don't always prepare for as well as we might. I quote from your work, the analysis suggests there's a small but statistically significant increase in the average engagement scores of federal agency subcomponents led by career members of the SES compared to those led by appointees. These findings do not demonstrate that career leadership consistently leads to higher employee engagement across the board, but they suggest a range of hypotheses on how such leaders are or are not set up for success. And you used that term a moment ago. What should the leaders above the leaders, whether they're political appointees or careers that are leading these subcomponents, do to help set those leaders up for success, given the structural challenges you just laid out, Lauren? So they, first of all, they should be thinking really hard about how they select career and political leaders for any of these roles. And that's a leadership given, but it is not always taken as seriously as it might be. They need to think about how they organize teams uh, and pay attention to the scores that we offer them around employee engagement to make sure that they understand the challenges in the offices, regardless of who is lead leading them. Uh, they should be providing developmental opportunities for leaders, whether they're political appointees or career civilians, and they need to be making plans for how they mitigate vacancies or skill gaps. 
Um, and then on top of that, across the board, they need to be encouraging leaders, no matter who they are, to care about employee engagement. Whether they're going into an office that has sky high scores, how can we continue that? Or going to an office that has had challenges over the course of the last few years. You're not going to have success in performing your mission unless your employees believe that that mission matters and believes that they have the tools in order to perform at that level. And prioritizing that means that no matter career or political, you're going to find more success across the board. You made a joke before we started, and I don't think it was a joke now that I think of it, that this research indicates that there's more research to do. What would you like to look at next, Lauren? What's the next logical progression of this, do you think? So I do think that we should do more studies that actually do look at the tenure of leaders, whether on career civilians or on the political appointee side. I think we should better understand the impact that vacancies themselves have on employee engagement. We're offering hypotheses right now that seem to be suggesting that long-term vacancies are creating challenges for the federal government, and it's logical that they would. But I think putting a finer point on that and making that case to the Senate and others that we need to improve this system is at the top of my list. I also wanna look at different types of organizations and uh, whether they are ones who are closer to the mission and delivering services directly to the American people or they whether they are ones that are more in the kind of a policy development role and see how those employee engagement scores compare and whether or not there are recommendations we can have about the kinds of leaders they need in order to be the most effective. When you get all that together, I'd love to have you come back and talk about it, Lauren. It's great to talk to you again. Always happy to be here, Francis. Thank you. You can find a link to the partnership work on agency leadership in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Friday's show, Struggles for the System that Supports 8 Million Federal Employees and Retirees. Kevin Walsh of the Government Accountability Office is here to talk about the Trust Funds Modernization Program on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Next Friday will be the one-year anniversary of the passage of the American Rescue Plan that added a billion dollars to the Technology Modernization Fund. A lot of the focus of the TMF is on projects agencies are starting, but some agencies are already finishing their TMF projects. Ann Duncan is the Chief Information Officer at the Energy Department at IT Mod Talks this week. She tells my colleague Billy Mitchell her agency's project is almost complete. That was to get all of our uh, all of our email into the cloud, um, and I think with the exception of one site where there's some uh, national security issues, um, all we did get all the email into the cloud in Microsoft Office 365 primarily. Um, we have Berkeley on Google. I think they're the only ones that we got out there on Google, but we do have one instance of Google. The rest is Office 365. Um, so that project is wrapped up, um, and we are getting ready to close it out with with uh, with uh, um, the TMF program and to start a repayment schedule. So, you know, it was a successful project. It was a very small project. Uh, we have several other projects in the pipeline for TMF um, that we are looking forward to and hoping to have funded. Um, you know, the TMF is massively oversubscribed. Uh, you know, there's $1 billion that's been put in. Uh, I think they've got some like $5 billion worth of requests on their plate now. Um, <clears throat> so clearly there's a pent up demand. Um, and one of the challenges is, you know, TMF was originally envisioned uh, to be repaid, uh, which we're doing on that first project. There are a lot of things that uh, we, people want to do, including DOE, that we can't repay. We, we aren't going to get benefits from that. I mean, we obviously could treat it as a loan, but we're not going to get the benefits that will that will self-fund a repayment. 
Um, and the TMF program is, I think, concerned rightly about can they replenish those funds if they give out a lot of it without repayment. So um, I think there's a lot of concern about the ability to fund projects that will really improve security um, and 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 to be able to do that uh, and still have the TMF uh, have a have a viable stream of money coming into it. So that's a really an open question that's got to get resolved: is how do we get those projects funded and keep the TMF whole? Um, and you know we've got projects for places that like, uh, for example, our uh, power marketing administrations. Right there, the folks who pay they set rates for wholesale power. Their uh, rate payers are very sensitive. You know, if we get a TMF project, we need we can't really afford to repay that project, but we need to make the PMAs more secure because we like to keep energy infrastructure secure and keep power flowing to the American people. So we've got a lot of interesting challenges with TMF and uh, lots of smart people running it who hopefully will be able to figure out how to solve those problems. That's great to hear. Last time we spoke on FedScoop's Let's Talk About IT podcast, we talked a lot about cybersecurity, and I wanted to continue that conversation a little bit here today, because um, since then, uh, the administration's come out with a zero trust strategy. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, as Energy has a pretty big cyber portfolio, not only in your office in terms of securing the agency, but also uh, the ener- securing of n- a nuclear energy, uh, the pipelines, things under, under that. So um, tell me about your, your cybersecurity efforts under uh, the Department of Energy. Yeah, uh, really. Cybersecurity, you know, it's just a huge thing for DOE. You know, cybersecurity was important. EPA and other places I've worked for, but obviously at DOE, we've got, as you say, nuclear security. Uh, we've got uh, pipeline security uh, that's handled mainly by my counterparts in Caesar. Uh, we've got uh, the the grid, which is shared by Caesar and, and myself uh, in terms of the DOE versus the public sector, private sector. So tremendous amount of stuff that we worry about a great deal keeping secured. So. Um, DOE is making a huge investment uh, in in cybersecurity every year, um, and we've got a huge investment to make in zero trust. Uh, we don't have enough money to attack that whole uh, uh, the whole zero, the whole executive order, much less just the zero trust piece. So we are taking a very much a risk based approach, looking at that, looking at what's in the executive order, what's in the cybersecurity strategy, excuse me, the zero trust strategy, which is actually. Um, a really nicely written document that really builds connections to executive orders, to other documents, to really help people understand how that strategy is laid out and how it's going to work with previous activities. So we really like the way they wrote up that, that strategy. Um, but we need to look at what's in that strategy, look at what's in our implementation plans, and figure out what's going to give us the biggest bang for the buck. What's going to solve the biggest problems we have? And we'll attack those things first. And then we'll move on to things uh, beyond that, keeping in mind that there'll be something else that probably comes up uh, in the meantime. Uh, but we really, um, uh, really have some challenges in terms of our ability to uh, get the work done because uh, there's just not enough funding for all the activities we need to do in that space. So we're going to focus on zero trust. We're going to focus on multi-factor authentication. Um, and we're going to focus on ensuring that we apply security at the appropriate level, whether it's an open science lab where we have to collaborate with people all around the world or um, you know, controlled nuclear uh, information where we have to keep that very secure. And we'll, we'll work that across the whole spectrum, including all of our OT assets uh, on the power generation side, which are entirely different um, and require different types of security, uh, but are equally important. 
Yeah. And it, I mean, going back to the TMF, that seems like a great, if, if money's an issue, that could be a place to go, but we haven't seen TMF awards, uh, at least publicly since September. Um, is, is that maybe an avenue you think that agencies such as energy could go to kind of, uh, you know, fill in the gap for, for funding they might need for the zero trust strategy? We're certainly hoping that the TMF will be a place where we can fill in those gaps. Um, you know, if you look at, at what DOE needs to, to do our, to solve our problems with security, we could take all that money and, and, <laughs> and still not be done. Um, so, you know, but certainly uh, there, there are a lot of projects that people could move forward on, on security using TMF funding. We have some in the pipeline that we're hoping will get funded. I know other departments and agencies do too. Um, so we're crossing our fingers and hoping that, that we'll see that money. That's great to hear. Um, one other area that I, I always think is very interesting about the Department of Energy and all of its labs is uh, its kind of adoption of emerging technologies like AI and supercomputing. Um, so tell me, I know it's not always directly in your portfolio as the CIO, but I'd be interested to hear how the, the department's thinking about adopting these technologies for some of its you know, widespread missions. Yeah, so, so there's a couple things around those. You know, First of all, DOE is a, a global leader in supercomputing. At any given time, we probably have three of the top five fastest computers in the world. Um, and I had the opportunity to visit a lab the other day and see one of them. And you know, while it's just a bunch of racks, it's a pretty amazing thing to think about. I'm looking at one of the fastest computers in the world. Um, so uh, DOE will continue to be a leader in supercomputing. Um, and, and we constantly, we build about one supercomputer every year. Um, and I say about because there's a, you know, about, we build like four out of every five years. So it's not quite yeah. one a year, um, but we're a tremendous leader in that space. And we apply that supercomputing, not only to DOE's projects, but we make those supercomputers open and available um, to, uh, the, to researchers around the world. They can get time on these supercomputers. So we do, again, everything from open research to highly classified research on these computers um, and, and really move the scientific um, knowledge of the United States and the world forward through these systems. So that's a really an exciting thing to get to be part of. Technically, that supercomputing portfolio rolls up to me uh, as CIO, um, you know, but obviously uh, I have a very light touch on that portfolio in my role uh, as CIO because I'm not the expert on, on supercomputing. Uh, you know, we've got great experts in the organization on that topic. Um, in addition, as you point out, AI. So, you know, the AI portfolio um, spans all of DOE. Uh, there's, a, there's a new office uh, to coordinate AI uh, that sits up in uh, the secretary's office. Uh, and then we do a lot of work to support uh, that. We're also doing work in the CIO Council on cataloging AI across uh, the federal government. So, um, you know, there's lots of AI projects across DOE and, and we've been uh, in, in the office CIO building some capabilities that help facilitate um, the cataloging help facilitate delivering some of those projects, um, and you know, we and and one of the things we do actually across DOE is that um, knowledge gathering activity. We built a 5G catalog recently. We're in the process of, of starting a cyber defensive capability catalog, so we can identify what we do at DOE because uh, it's such a big enterprise. People don't always know what we do. So when we get into emerging technologies, one of the roles that the Office of CIO has really taken on is facilitating, coordinating, and connecting across DOE. So we know what DOE has in our enterprise. And so others in the federal government can know what DOE has in our enterprise. And in a similar vein, as we close out here, uh, it's 
the last time we spoke, you mentioned you were spearheading the development of a playbook on innovation and digital transformation. Um, what can you tell us about that and the progress you've made? Yeah, so Billy, the, the, the playbook we're working on uh, is, is about scaling digital transformation. It goes back to, um, you know, back when I was uh, working at Dell, I was I had a little extra time. I kind of remember that. Uh, and uh, apparently I can't just relax. I got involved with the day one project, which was designed to um, create ideas for the, for the new administration. And so Greg Godbout and I wrote a position paper um, on this and and I have the opportunity now to actually build out this playbook that we envisioned uh, back uh, a year and a half ago now. Um, so the idea of this playbook is to um, give plays to departments and agencies to help them understand how to scale transformation. We've got lots of pockets of digital transformation across departments and agencies. What we don't have is scale. Um, you know, the Air Force has done some things at scale with their software factory model, um, but that's sort of a, a limited place where that exists. So we're really talking about what are those plays and how can you execute them? Things like um, providing a, an enterprise-wide low-code, no-code platform, providing a rapid ATO process uh, that will allow people to quickly get, get things uh, going, provide, providing procurement and hiring processes that support those uh, behaviors. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, we're currently interviewing people to get all the very best ideas for what those 10 to 12 plays are going to look like. Um, and then we'll be building out the playbook and publishing it. So I'm very excited about that. I'm hoping that we can make that something that's not just for DOE, but for, for everybody in the government. The Chief Information Officer at the Energy Department, Ann Duncan, with my FedScoop colleague Billy Mitchell at IT Mod Talks this week. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, an inside look at the core financial system at OPM. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.